Well, thanks so much, Tim and Joe. It's great to be here with you tonight at St. Dionys here in Fulham. And uh, wherever you're joining us from, you're so welcome. It's wonderful that we can connect like this. As Tim said, we're carrying on our mini-series called Ascend, preparing our hearts for the year ahead. And we've been rooted in Psalm 24, who will ascend the hill of the Lord. We're going to ascend that hill tonight together. Well, having spent the last 15 years exploring psychology in the Bible, I found very, very few incidences where the contemporary wisdom on human flourishing and the ancient wisdom of Scripture diverge. This is probably most evident within the discipline of social psychology, which explores how our thoughts, feelings and behaviours are influenced by the relational environment around us. It feels like the Bible begins with the most basic and fundamental psychological truth. In Genesis 2.8 it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Sadly though, the church has tended to bracket that teaching and make it exclusively relative to marriage, making its relevance really far more narrow than I believe was ever intended. The fact is that God does not qualify man's problem uh, as anything other than aloneness. God doesn't say uh, it's not good for man not to be married or it's not good for man not to have children or it's not good for man uh, to be in a relationship with his wife. He doesn't say any of those things. What God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And aloneness or loneliness continues to have a catastrophic negative impact on our lives today. In, in terms of physical health, a lack of social connection has been determined to be far worse for our bodies than obesity, smoking, or even high blood pressure. But inversely, a strong social connection can impact our longevity by up to 50%. Can you imagine going to your doctor and him looking you over and then saying, oh, well, you know, I think I, I might have a tablet for this. Mm, actually, I'm not sure it's a tablet. I just want you to phone a friend. You might live for 50% longer than you are currently on a trajectory to. Would you, would you believe it? If you went to see your doctor and said, I'm going to prescribe you a game of cards with friends, what do you think about his medicine? sounds outlandish, but it's true. Social connection, togetherness, unity can transform our lives. In terms of emotional health, social isolation has a devastating impact upon our mental health. And many of us are experiencing that right now through this terrible pandemic. But interestingly, social connection dramatically lowers levels of anxiety and depression, as well as improving cognitive function and executive function. It basically means that we make better decisions together. Me and Tim have been chatting in the office this week about the incredible feat of a group of Nepalese climbers who've climbed K2 during the winter as a team. Now, uh, if you're like Everest is a bit of a puppy compared to K2, which is the real Rottweiler of mountains. It's got a far higher death rate proportionate to climbing than Everest has. It's far more technical and difficult. It's far more inhospitable. It's only about 200 or 300 meters lower than Everest. It's not exactly a lot smaller. But no one's ever climbed it in the winter successfully. 
And here we've got a group of climbers who've climbed it as a team. Now, most of these extremely experienced climbing teams will climb as a team depending on the strengths of the team. And then when they get near the summit, they'll send up two climbers, if you like, to claim the climb for the whole team. Sounds sensible. Not this group of Nepalese climbers, who looks incredibly unified. What they did was they gathered in the saddle, a kind of area just below the summit. They decided, we're all going to do this together. So they climbed to the top of K2 and celebrated their climb as a whole team. It was remarkable. They made an incredible decision to be together, to celebrate together, to win together. It transformed our experience of life just watching them. But it's not that unusual, is it? When you've been to the beach, seen a gorgeous sunrise, haven't you looked around and thought, mm, I wish I could have shared this with someone? Or maybe you stood on top of a mountain and thought, wow, this is brilliant. I, I, I want to call a friend or take a picture and share it on Facebook or Instagram. I want to share my experiences because they're better together. Now, whilst I hope these facts are significant, I really want to zero in on the spiritual impact of togetherness tonight. You see, the bookends of the Bible are on the one hand loneliness and on the other hand togetherness. God acknowledges in Genesis chapter 2 that it's not good for man to be alone. And then in John 17, 21, Jesus prays, I pray that they will all be one. Not one person, but one body together. Just as you and I are one, as you're in me, Father, and as I am in you. You could say, or you could simplify the purpose of the entire gospel as bringing those who are isolated in sin to togetherness in God. It's remarkable if you think about it. The Bible is about this story of aloneness into togetherness. That actually we were separated from God, but our whole journey of life is to be together with God forever. But you know, the danger of simplification is not that we miss the purpose of Scripture, it's that we miss the praxis of Scripture. The purpose of God in the world is to bring us home to himself. And we join with him in that great purpose. But God's set out a, a way of living, a way of doing, a way of growing, which takes us to that end. Christians have long fallen into the trap of denying that our relationships on earth are important because we're so wrapped up with the relationship of heaven, the relationship to which we're ultimately called. They've been so busy trying to make that purpose a reality, they've missed the fact that we embody the message that we are for, that we share that message, that we demonstrate that message. And as a result, loneliness isn't just epidemic in the world, loneliness is epidemic in the church. We've been so focused on the message that we're called to relationship with God for eternity, we've forgotten to live in relationship with one another now as a sign a sign of what God has actually called us to. And if we spend our time seeking a relationship of oneness when God has called us to a relationship of unity, what's that say to the world around us? How does that prophetically demonstrate what God has actually spoken over us? So we need to rethink our priorities and our practices to live and lead in a way that reflects the unity of the kingdom of God, not the idol of independence that's celebrated in the nation at large. When we think about climbing, so often the climbers that we've remembered are the ones who've gone it alone. 
I was thinking, great climbers, soloists they're called, who've kind of scaled the mountain on their own. Everyone looks at them and admires them. It's like, wow, they've done it alone. They've done it on their own terms. Typically, they don't last that long, sadly. Why don't we celebrate the ones who've done it together? Why don't we celebrate the great team of Nepalese climbers that I was just talking about? Actually, is it better to go alone or is it better to go together? At the heart of the Christian message, it's not a message of going alone. It's the message of going together. So rather than celebrating the one champion on their own, why don't we celebrate the whole army? Instead of celebrating the one that stands out, why don't we celebrate the ones that blend in? Why don't we start celebrating the togetherness, the team of which we are all a part? And so let's turn to our passage for tonight, tonight, Luke chapter 10, just reading verses 1 through 8. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. So in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the disciples to fulfill the purpose of the kingdom of God. But the methodology really matters here. Now he points 72 disciples to go out and spread the good news. But he splits them into groups of two. Meaning actually that he could cover twice as many towns if he just sent them out one by one. Why would Jesus reduce the amount of towns that could be covered by the good news? Why would he diminish, if you like, the impact that he could have in the region? It sounds like a really big sacrifice. It actually sounds pretty inefficient. And it sounds quite unnecessary because surely Jesus was sending the disciples out in the power of the Holy Spirit. They weren't really going alone. They were kind of going with God, with all of God's power. So what was really going on? Well, here are three ideas. The first thing is that Jesus was demonstrating his care for the individual. Jesus hasn't called the church to run itself into the ground and look completely exasperated. If the kingdom of God is about revitalization and transformation, about the glory of God, is it great that all the Christians look completely messed up? Is that what God intended? That we all kind of stagger through this earth and everyone's looking at us going, wow, this Christian's having a really tough time. You know, they're beating themselves up all the time. They're always on their own. They're always completely exhausted and they're extremely stressed. I don't think that's what God intends. Jesus knew what the impact of isolation was, so he sent out the disciples in twos. He knew that it was damaging for their mental and emotional health. He knew it was damaging for their physical health, for them to be isolated. Jesus generously does what Jesus knows is good and true and right and human. He sends people out together. The second thing is that Jesus is demonstrating what he's offering prophetically. If Jesus is really offering people togetherness with God, why would he send people out on their own to be lonely? Jesus sends people out together because it's a sign. It's a sign to the world that this is what we're called to. We're called to be together. 
I think about those great gatherings, Jesus walking up the Emmaus Road with two disciples. You know, Jesus gathering with John and Peter, having some breakfast. Jesus dining with the twelve. Jesus didn't need to do it with them, did he? I mean, Jesus was the son of God, with, filled with power from on high. Why does Jesus need any disciples at all anyway? Why does Jesus need to gather around with people? Why does Jesus socialize? Why does Jesus eat and drink? Because it's a sign of what God is actually calling us all to. He's called our church to be all that, gathered together. Don't stop gathering together. Even in COVID times, we're all gathered together through the Spirit of God by means of technology. Don't stop gathering because together we demonstrate a prophetic sign of what God is actually calling us to, moving from being alone to being together with him forever. Thirdly, Jesus is demonstrating that the economy of God is different to the economy of man. Now, God's work is always inefficiently efficient. Man's work is always offering the bare necessities. But God's so generous. He's so ridiculously generous. You know, God feeding the 5,000 on hillside, you think God would get the measurements exactly right. So everyone got enough to be full, but not so there would be anything left over. But then the disciples go around and they gather up 12 baskets full of stuff that was left over because God always creates more than is necessary. God doesn't say, I'll give to you just what you need. He says, I'm going to give to you over what you need so your cup is going to overflow. God says to you, I'm going to give you the bread of heaven so you're never going to hunger again and you know, the water of life so you're never going to thirst again. He doesn't give you just enough. He gives you more than enough. God is inefficiently efficient. It's a sign of God's heart towards us, of his generosity towards us. So God gives in this way. He sends out generously. He says, I'm going to give each of your towns two of my disciples, not just one. And each of you disciples, I'm going to give you to one another. I want it to be a sign of my economy. You know, we're facing significant and worrying trends around loneliness that began well before coronavirus and lockdown. In 1985, people claimed on average to have three personal confidants, three people that they would call in a time of crisis and that they felt they could tell anything to. But by 2004, that had reduced to just one. The people said, well, actually, there's only one person that I can really call and have an honest conversation with. In 2014, 53% of people in the UK reported some feelings of loneliness. But in 2020, 2.6 million people reported feeling lonely often or always. But it's not just people out there who feel like that. Lifeway research has shown that 55% of pastors like Tim and I feel lonely regularly. And if we in the church can't experience what it means to be together, how can we offer that broken and hurting world something more, something good, something that they'll long for? How about you tonight? I know we're separated physically now because of COVID, but when you look back to your time in church, how do you feel about rushing away as soon as the final hymn comes up? How do you feel about arriving late so you can avoid having conversations with people before you come in the door? And what are we doing collectively together to be together as a sign to the world that actually we're called to be a body? 
We're called to invest in our relationships. We're called to be together. It's good for us. Christian worship was never about coming in and consuming liturgy and hymns and communion and then walking away again on our own. It was all about coming together to commune around the table of communion. So we could be family, we could eat and drink. Jesus said, do this every time you eat it in remembrance of me. It wasn't that they came in for bread and wine, it's because they came in for dinner and they had bread and wine as a sign of their togetherness. You know, if COVID's shown us anything, it's how much we need one another. Aren't you longing to get back in this building and stay for coffee? I can't, I didn't drink coffee, but I can't wait for you to stay for coffee and croissants and to linger in the building and have chats and laugh and be together because it's good for you and it's the economy of God and it's good for the world. So what do we do about it? How do we improve our relational health? Well, let's look for Revelation again in Luke chapter 10. There are three common obstacles to the power of our togetherness. The first one is that when the pressure comes on, the first thing we sacrifice are our relationships. When the pressure comes on, the first thing we sacrifice are our relationships. You know, when you face a difficult deadline, was the first thing you did pick up the phone and call an old friend? Uh, when the first thing that happened in the office was that there was a bit of an IT disaster, did you decide to call home and have a chat with your husband or wife or with your flatmate? Uh, when you were going through a difficult time and you had a few deadlines, did you, you know, remember to call your brother-in-law for his birthday? No, I'm sorry, I missed it. I was so busy. We tend to miss relationship when we're under pressure. And in this day and age, we're under pressure so much of the time, we're missing relationships all of the time. Our world is filled with pressures. Pressures to work, pressures to conform, pressures to be online, pressures to get stuff done, pressures to achieve, pressures to make our mark on the world. And all of these pressures steal our opportunity for relationship. In verse 2, Jesus is sending his disciples out into a pressured environment. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is a harvest field which is filled with harvest, but there are very few workers. That means that this is an incredibly pressurized harvest field. And the Christian temptation is to go, oh, I know, it's a pressurized harvest field, so I'm going to go and be an evangelist all on my own. It's not important to have relationship inside the church. We're so busy we're wasting our time drinking coffee and eating croissants when we should be out there on our own doing the work of the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, that's important, but I've sent you together because relationship is also important. When we're under pressure, we should choose not to isolate, but to unify. Remember that the Nepalese climbers were better together, far better than they were apart. When you have a big business deadline, you tend to seek efficiency. Culturally, the West has become so passionate about efficiency that it always sacrifices community. You can manage a, imagine a, a management consultant out there in the field laying down grids and allocating an individual to each grid. This is your space. Though stop talking, this is a really big harvest field. God's great economy, he's called us together to be together 
for works he's prepared in advance for us to do together for his glory. Secondarily, we need to know that the Bible is passionate about our togetherness. In fact, there are 1,626 different verses in the Bible that reference togetherness. You see, relationship in the scripture is a priority, not an achievement. The scripture doesn't celebrate achievements like management consultants. The scripture prioritizes and celebrates our relationships with one another. As Jesus says in Luke 12, don't store up earthly treasures, store up heavenly ones. What do you store? What do you treasure? Achievements or relationships? I used to store sports trophies that I was proud of on my shelf. But now they're just pen pots and items of amusement for my children. I used to take my friends for granted but now I store their numbers on my phone with the reverence of a collector of rare butterflies. The kingdom of God does not sacrifice relationship for achievement when the pressure comes on. Secondarily, when we isolate, we're normally under attack. Jesus says in verse 3, Go, I'm sending you out like lambs, amongst wolves you know sheep are herd animals and when that wolf appears they all run for cover and humans like sheep are also herd animals when the pressure comes on and the wolf attacks we also tend to run for cover run on our own and run away our experience in the church my own Tim's Joe's Louis is so often that when people are facing some personal attack some uh, temptation or sin some struggle rather than running towards the flock they run off on their own and they just vanish and you're saying have you seen so and so I haven't seen them around for the last couple of weeks no I haven't seen them either are you, do you think they're okay I don't know let's give them a call and then you phone up and you say, hey, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. And they nearly always begin the conversation with, oh, I'm really sorry I haven't been around. I've been going through a really tough time. You've been going through a tough time and you didn't call us? We, we, we're a team. We're together. Oh, yeah, but I'm struggling and, you know, I, you know I'm just, there's a sin or there's a temptation. There's a difficulty and, oh, I need to sort myself out before I come to Sort yourself out before you come to church. Church isn't a place for sorted out people. Church is a place where people are broken, people are hurting, people are struggling, people are limping. This is the church. This is what we're here for. We're a hospital. This is not a beauty pageant. Don't wait to come to church till you're sorted. Come to church when you're broken. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose. It's that together we are stronger. Together we can help one another. As it says in Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if one falls down, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls down without another to help him up. I, I don't want any of you to be subject to my pity in the weeks ahead. Or Tim's. I want you to be subject to my hand that I might help you, that I might pull you, that, that Tim, Joe, Louis, the team here might, 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 might offer you a hand. Now, sanitized, COVID-friendly hand, but you know, let us help. Let us 
together, the church, the whole church, not just us as leaders, but you as congregation members, help one another stand together, not run from one another, but find remedy in our togetherness. Why do we run? Well, usually because of shame and guilt and fear of humiliation. In our hearts, we want to project strength and independence rather than weakness and need. But the gospel that we share, the one that God wants us to build the church upon, is not one that's built on the backs of good, independent people without need for him or others. God is building his church on the backs of sinners, of broken people, the weak, the lonely, that they might know his love by the way we love one another. If we reject each other's love just when we need it the most, how will the lonely and hurting in the world know that this is a place of radical love and relationship? Thirdly and finally, we depend, I think, a lot on things, not people. In verse 4, Jesus says, Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. When I leave the house, I always check that I have what are called the golden three. My golden three are my wallet, my keys, and my phone. And if I leave the house with my golden three, I'm normally set for my day. But if I leave the house without my golden three, I soon feel quickly anguished. I'm particularly accustomed to leaving my house without my keys because I leave them in the back of the door and I push my bike through the house and I slam the door behind me and I've left my keys in the back of the door and I cycle away only to find that I can get to the church office and then not be able to get in. So leaving my keys, which is uncomfortable but nearly always rectified by my cycle home and my wife's provision of the keys uh, from the back of the door. But if I lose my phone, then I'm really anxious. And if I lose my wallet, I'm triply anxious. But I always check I've got my golden three. And here, Jesus is sending out his disciples on this uh, unidentified journey into all of this land of Israel without really clear instruction about which town to visit and who's going to actually help them on the road without the three most important things in the first century, the golden three, money, resources, and transport. Jesus says, do not take your purse, your bag, or your sandals. Your purse, which has your money in it, your bag, which has your resources in it, and your sandals, which are your transport. Don't take your golden three. Because actually, I want you to be dependent on one another for your need. I don't want you to be independent. In the 21st century, technology isn't just the architect of our intimacies, it is our intimacy. A Penn State study showed that 77% of people agreed society as a whole relied far too much on technology to succeed. You become reliant on the golden three. We become reliant particularly on our phones, but we're reliant on technology. And our technology feeds our desire for intimacy. I just scroll the feeds. I consume other people's lives. I just head on to Facebook or Instagram or Bebo, whatever it is that you use, rather than picking up the phone and calling a friend, rather than having a face-to-face conversation with someone I care about. In this series, we've been using this climbing analogy, and I was looking at Tim's climbing rope from last week. You know, he he is a very slim man, but his climbing rope can hold a load of 2,400 kilograms, equivalent to a large rhinoceros. Now, if he's climbing a steep mountain and he falls off, it's good to know that the rope is strong enough to hold him. His rope strength is really important. But I want to tell you, his rope strength is not half as important as the person who's holding the other end. 
You know, if we're using strong equipment, that's great, but actually the strong equipment's only as good as the relationship we have with the person at the end of the rope. You know, and I want to ask you tonight, who's holding the end of your rope? Your rope might be strong, but have you got a relationship to support that rope? Is someone actually holding on to the end for you tonight? You know, technology has its place in society. But the trouble is it's replacing human relationships. Jesus was sending his disciples with the obvious need of not having their golden three in order that other humans might respond to their need with compassion and service. Jesus said, you know, when someone offers you dinner, go into their house and eat everything that they offer you. Why? Is that, are they meant to be impolite disciples? No, as a sign, as a sign that you appreciate their provision, their love, their companionship, their generosity, their friendship. In some cultures, if you don't eat the food, it's an insult to the family. I like that idea. I'm generally hungry all the time. I don't want to insult my host. I want to eat all of their food. It's a sign of my need, of my vulnerability. Eat all they offer you. And let there be peace upon that house. Let there be unity. Let there be union. Let there be togetherness. It's a sign of the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom in action, that God so loved the world that he met its need even though that sacrifice cost him his only son, Jesus. This is the great meta-narrative, the great picture of scripture from loneliness, from the hunger we carry, starved of relationship, into togetherness, dining with God together, filled, sated, that deep longing fulfilled at last. That's what heaven looks like. I'm hungry for relationship with my creator. And now I've found that relationship in fullness. I'm dining with the king. The food is just a sign. Hunger is just a sign of a spiritual desire. It's built within us to say we have need and God can and will fulfill it. You know, Google doesn't love you. Facebook does not love you. Twitter doesn't love you. Instagram does not love you. Even Match.com does not love you. But Jesus really loves you. Now, all these things can be an architect of our intimacy. They can be our intimacy, but only one thing can meet our need. Relationship with God. It's the echo, it's the ache of our hearts that we might know what togetherness really looks like. And God has called us to these human relationships now as a foretaste of what heaven will be. And heaven is not just a, a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's a relationship with all of the saints, all of us in fullness and completeness. You know, relational health is not some nice to have. It's not some sort of Zen well-being experience. It's what comes about when we seek to meet each other's needs for human connection, particularly when we're wounded or struggling. You know, we need to remember to use things and love people, not use people and love things. And if the purpose of life is to experience togetherness with God and the love of others, then tears make perfect sense. But Charles Darwin said that cheers, human tears are purposeless. 
Human tears are purposeless. Now, that seems to make perfect sense to me if the purpose of life was the expediency with which we reproduced ourselves. If the reason we were here was simply to be good at procreation, tears are purposeless. But the purpose of life is to experience that togetherness. And therefore, tears make perfect sense. Psychology professor Jonathan Rottenberg said, crying signals to yourself and other people that there's something important, there's an important problem that is at least temporarily beyond your ability to cope. Crying is a sign to yourself and to others that there's some important problem and that you need others. You need to be together with others in order that your needs might be met. You see, tears aren't purposeless. Tears are significant. They're a sign, an echo of our deepest need. Tears are about our communion, about our togetherness. Tears are a bridge by which we might travel to one another's hearts. You know, emotional tears are even chemically different from the tears that we shed when we chop the onions. You know, tears that we shed by means of cleaning our eyes are chemically different to those that fall down our cheeks when we are emotionally wounded, hurting. Those tears, those emotional tears, have more proteins in them. And that makes the tear a little bit more viscose. That means a little bit more sticky. And so those tears, those emotional tears, track down your face in both a more defined and a more slow manner. They're more teary, they're bigger, and they travel more slowly. What would it be that our tears, our emotional tears, would be chemically different to the tears that we shed when we need to clean our eyes? Well, here's the reason. Because those tears that we shed are the tears that we need to shed in order that others might know that we have need of them. There are others that see our pain and seek to meet our needs. Jesus, he sheds tears. Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the whole of scripture, yet possibly the most powerful. Jesus, God incarnate, would call us to relationship. Even he would express a vulnerability that he might himself receive comfort from the sisters of Lazarus. We've created, we've been created with our communion in mind. We were lonely, but God's called us to togetherness. This is the power of togetherness, the power of connection through vulnerability and compassion. Relational health is not a state of independence from others, but interdependence with others in which we can all say, his love is made perfect in our weakness. Why don't we pray where we are right now? Lord Jesus, we are isolated in these strange times, but not from you 
and not from one another through your spirit. We pray right now as we sit or stand in our homes that you would come and touch us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We shed spiritual tears before you tonight, Lord, and express our need of you. We want to say to you, God, come and meet with us. Come commune with us. Touch us. If you're feeling isolated and alone tonight, I want to pray with you that you just have a profound sense of the presence of the Spirit of God, that you'd know his love, his comfort, his compassion, but also that you'd know the love, comfort, and compassion of the church to which you belong. That in households all around this city right now, there are other people listening to this message who are thinking of you and one another, thinking about the church to which they belong. Together, we are the children of God. Together, we are the family of God. Together, we are called to his purposes. Together, the greatest achievement of the one is the greatest achievement of the all. And the greatest struggle of the one is the greatest struggle of the all. Know tonight that you're wrapped in the loving together arms of the Father. That his presence is with you right now. Come Holy Spirit, touch every person. Meet every need. And we pray, Lord, for your church in this season of struggle, that it might rise together in love for a broken and hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen.